Welcome back to the program. It's been almost 50 years since Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty. It's been more than 50 years since JFK was moved by the poverty of Appalachia and Bobby Kennedy by the poverty of the South Bronx. Today, that poverty may not be as dark or desperate, but it's certainly more insidious. While we focus on the growing gap between the 1% and the middle class, we often ignore those that have fallen out of the middle class and below the poverty level. That group is growing exponentially, and it's a blight on our nation. Certainly, it is not part of the American exceptionalism the president spoke of last week. We're going to talk about this today with a guest that has been on this program previously. He is Sasha Abramsky. He's a freelance journalist, a lecturer at the University Writing Program at UC Davis. His work has appeared in numerous publications, and he's a senior fellow at Demos. It is my pleasure to welcome Sasha Abramsky back to this program to talk about his newest work, The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives. Sasha Abramsky, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. It's good to have you here. When we look at poverty in America today as compared to 50 years ago when when Michael Harrington wrote about the other America, is the whole issue of poverty much more complex today? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, one of the things that Harrington did is he went around the country and he had this idea that poverty still existed. And you might think, well, you know, what kind of idea is that? But in the early 1960s, there was this narrative that America was a land that had banished poverty that you could go all the way back to the Great Depression and you found poverty, but in the decades since, it has sort of somehow vanished from the scene. And Harrington said, this is nonsense. And he actually spent a lot of time going into soup kitchens, he spent a lot of time in SROs, he spent a lot of time in areas like Appalachia. And he showed America not only that poverty existed, but he showed America the impact it had on the lives and on the communities that were stuck in poverty. And he sort of shamed the nation into action. You talked about the war on poverty. He created a moral challenge for Kennedy, for Lyndon Johnson, for the liberal politicians of the 1960s. And it was really in the wake of the other America that all the social programs, all the economic interventions of the 1960s and the 1970s followed. So is poverty today the same? Would would Michael Harrington recognize it? Well, I spent a lot of time traveling the country. My project was essentially to update Harrington. So I, I basically spent two years traveling around the country, going to all kinds of out-of-the-way corners and talking to people and chronicling their lives and recording their voices, doing everything I could to bring to life these largely invisible, largely ignored stories. I think Harrington would recognize some of the stories that I tell. He would certainly recognize the inner-city poverty that I chronicle. He would certainly recognize some of the poverty that I explored in the Mississippi Delta and in Appalachia. But I think he'd be absolutely astonished by the scale of suburban poverty that you see today. The people who lost their savings when the housing market collapsed. People who lost their jobs when the job market collapsed. The people who've been juggling various forms of debt, various forms of um, credit for the last five, ten years, and they've run out of options. So they're essentially maxed out on their credit cards. They don't have health insurance. They're trying to work out, do I pay the rent? Do I buy medicines? Do I buy school supplies for my kids? Do I go to bed hungry? And it's those kind of choices, and it's the fact that you see those kind of choices all over America, that it could be your listeners' neighbors, their friends, their relatives. It could be your listeners themselves. I think that's new, and I think it's something that Harrington would really sort of scratch his head about and wonder what has gone wrong with our political process 
to allow this expansion of poverty into corners of the country that just weren't experiencing it half a century ago. One of the points you make is that it has expanded dramatically post-2008. That if you look pre-2008, it's clear that something was beginning to go wrong. That the amount of poverty was starting to increase. But that 2008 had a kind of magnifying effect on all of it. Yeah, I think what happens is inequality starts taking off dramatically about 30, 35 years ago. And American poverty today is really a story of American inequality. It's not a poverty caused by scarcity. It's not a poverty caused by national bankruptcy, despite what conservatives will say about about their debt. It's not a poverty caused by a complete lack of options. We're not experiencing the kind of poverty that you see in India or in Brazil. We're not experiencing the kind of poverty that you see in a bankrupt European nation like Greece, for example. The poverty we're experiencing is the direct result of choices made or not made politically. Now, I was speaking to a man at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, a lecturer called Marshall Gans, and he said to me, if you want to understand what poverty is, you've got to think of it as the miner's canary. And I asked him what he meant, and he said, well, in the olden days, before there were sophisticated measuring machines for gas, when the miners went down into the mines, they took a little bird with them, a canary. And if the canary suddenly stopped chirping and suddenly stopped fluttering its wings and dropped dead, The miners knew that that was the signal to run, that it was an early warning sign that gas was present, and they'd get out of the mine as quickly as they could. And Gann said to me, this is what poverty is in modern America. It is a symptom of something else that's going wrong. It's a symptom of profound levels of inequality that have been allowed to grow up. And Gantz is right. We saw that in the data released about two weeks ago, which showed that inequality in America is now at a higher level than at any point since the 1920s. What that means is the way our economy and our society is now functioning would be very recognizable to our great-great-grandparents. If they woke up today, they had this Rip Van Winkle moment, they woke up in the 2013 America, our great-great-grandparents would say, hey, this looks quite familiar. But our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents, they'd look around at this country and say, what on earth is going on? We have this sliver at the top. We talk about the 1%. It's actually even less than that. The higher up the ladder you get, the more income is being skewed to the top. It's the 0.1%, and it's the 0.01%, the people with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars who are accumulating almost all of the extra wealth created by a growing economy. People at the bottom, not just the bottom 2 3 4%, people in the bottom 20% have seen their income going down in real terms almost every year for 30 years. People in the middle are now seeing their income going down and have been since the um, recession started in 2007-8. So I think what we're seeing today, we're seeing a kind of poverty that reflects inequality. And that inequality preceded 2008. You're absolutely right. It's been turbocharged by the events of 2008, the daily insecurity of the people that I was talking to as I went around the country, the steel worker I talked to who lost his job, the Walmart worker I talked to whose hours were cut and who couldn't buy enough food to eat in the evenings. All of those stories you could have seen prior to 2008. You're just seeing more and more and more of them in the last few years. And that's what my book, The American Way of Poverty, is chronicling. Essentially what we're seeing in terms of the the exponential growth of this poverty is more and more people falling out of the middle class and falling below this poverty level. I think that's true. I spoke to an accountant, a woman called Luanne Prokop, in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, 
she was in her 50s, and prior to the recession, she'd had a perfectly middle-class income, a perfectly middle-class lifestyle. And then the recession hit, she lost her job, and for the last few years, she'd either had no work or the work she had paid about a third of what she was used to. Now, that's a woman who's in her 50s. She has a mortgage to reflect what she thought was a middle-class income. She had had a retirement plan. All of it's gone. She's struggling to stay in her home. Her retirement is, um, got, she's gone through her retirement savings. She ended up at a food pantry for a while. And you do hear these stories. You hear them not just in depressed communities. I mean, Appalachia historically has had quite a lot of economic hardship. But you hear them in suburban Las Vegas. You hear them in suburban Los Angeles. I, I interviewed people all over the country who fit that model, that even though for all of their lives they considered themselves middle class, if you looked at their daily realities, if you looked at the choices they were having to make, if you looked at the compromises they were having to make financially, to all intents and purposes, they had fallen out of the middle class. And their story has been underreported. Our politicians talk about the struggling middle class, but they rarely sort of dig deep and explore what that really means. And they almost never dig below the middle class and explore what it's like to live on the margins in America. So they almost never explore what it's like to be on food stamps as a family. They almost never explore what it's like to have no health insurance and to worry, what am I going to do if my kids get sick or if I get sick? And those stories, you sort of hear them, but you hear them in stereotype language in Washington. Um, what I wanted to do was really say, look, these are real people, and they have very complicated lives, and they have very interesting stories, and they represent one in six Americans today. They represent 50 million people. It's probably the single most common shared lived experience in modern America is that slide into poverty. But we haven't chronicled it. We haven't explored what it means to the modern American identity. So again, the project I set myself was I wanted to paint a picture. I wanted to paint a picture that really brought to life, maybe in the same way Steinbeck did with the Grapes of Wrath, what poverty means in the modern context and how it impacts people, not just financially but psychologically, how it shifts their sense of shelf, their, their sense of self, how it changes their relationship to the community around them. Um, and I, I found it an absolutely fascinating story to report. To what extent did you find this to be a function of real structural changes in the American economy as opposed to just public policy shifts along the way. And, I mean, obviously the two are deeply related, but to what extent have policy decisions led to this, and to what extent has it simply been a result of the dramatic changes in global economic conditions? I, I think it's, it, it's the, the changes in global economic conditions might have made it possible, but to make it probable, you had to have the policy choices. If it was literally an inevitability, if this was just somehow a fact of the zeitgeist, a product of the 21st century, then every other modern industrial democracy would be experiencing the same levels of poverty, the same levels of inequality, the same levels of profound or deep poverty, but they're not. No other Western democracy has anywhere near the poverty levels that America has. No other Western democracy has anywhere near the inequality levels that America has, with the exception of England, which historically has had fairly similar economic policies. And England's inequality data is marching upwards, not quite to the extent that America's is, but similarly. But Germany's isn't, France's isn't, Canada's isn't, Australia's isn't. Something's happening in America to permit this kind of inequality to run rampant, 
allow us to think it's normal. Now, one, one of the numbers that I focus on in my book, because to me it's so extraordinary, is the level of child poverty in this country. Eleven years ago, we had 16% of our children living in poverty, and at the time that was considered to be pretty high and worthy of some significant social investments to try to, mit to mitigate. But as the inequality has gotten worse and worse and worse, and as it overlaps with all of the unemployment and all of the other stresses created by the recession, the financial collapse, what we've seen is that child poverty has gone through the roof. So today, in the year 2013, more than 22%, so more than one in five American children, live below the government-defined poverty line. That's millions and millions of kids, many of whom are going to bed hungry, many of whom are waking up hungry, many of whom only avoid malnutrition because of food stamps, because of nutritional programs like free breakfast, free lunches, and schools. That's millions of kids whose life opportunities are being truncated. It's millions of kids living in unsafe environments, living in stressed environments. That's an extraordinary way to treat a young generation. No other country underinvests, no other democratic wealthy country underinvests in its children the way America is systematically doing at the moment. You see the debate in Washington. The debate in Washington these days isn't about spending more on investing in kids. It's about how many tens of billions of dollars to cut from food stamps, which is the one program keeping children and millions of, of adults out of hunger. But that's where the debate is at the moment. How do we cut welfare? How do we limit unemployment benefits? How do we cut food stamps? How do we underfund or defund the one healthcare reform made in the last few decades that has the potential to give health insurance to people who can't afford it? That's an extraordinary debate, and I think it speaks to a profound lack of empathy amongst a significant part of the political leadership in this country. And I think that when we sort of say, oh, this is inevitable, we're shortchanging ourselves. This is a country which historically has responded to challenges. In the Great Depression, it had the energy to create Social Security. 1960s, it had the energy to create Medicare. We've created food stamp programs. We've created affordable housing. In the past, the energy has been there to do that. Today, in 2013, we seem to have hit this dead end where our political rhetoric is all about blaming the poor for being poor. And we're ignoring all of the structural things that have been allowed to happen, that have been created in some cases, which create that poverty and make America exceptional. You talk about American exceptionalism. You mentioned it at the beginning of the introduction. In this instance, when it comes to poverty, America truly is exceptional because there's no other co comparable nation on earth which is tolerating that kind of poverty amidst its own population. In your research on this, have you been able to find what essentially was the tipping point at which the rhetoric did change to begin to blame the poor for being poor, to blame them for their own situation? That was, as you talk about, certainly not always the case. When did that rhetoric become so ingrained in our political dialogue? Well, Jeff, that's a great question because if you look at American history, and I'm, I'm a history buff, I, I study history, I read a huge amount of, of historical books when I'm doing my research, that rhetoric has always been a part of the American narrative. It's easy to romanticize the past and say everything was good in the past, and it's also untrue. There have always been some politicians and some groups who have marginalized, demonized, dehumanized the poor. 
in the 19th century, British social policy was profoundly coercive. And because Britain was so influential, it was able to create its equivalent of, let's say, the Washington Consensus. So it exported outwards a lot of its social policies and its economic policies. And America adopted them. So in the 19th century, America had poor laws. America had its equivalent of workhouses, the kind of Victorian, Dickensian way of dealing with the poor that we see in movies of Nicholas Nickleby, let's say, or something like that, Oliver Twist. What happened is in the 20th century, most industrial countries began creating a much more comprehensive social safety net. They realized that the old London consensus around poverty just didn't work, that it was inhumane, that it didn't raise people out of poverty, that it had all kinds of counterproductive impacts. And so they began looking for more creative alternatives, unemployment insurance, pension systems, universal health care, benefits for mothers, um, ultimately things like maternity leave and so on. America only did so in a very half-hearted way, and it did so in different states at different rates. In the South, the South was particularly reluctant to embrace ideas of a social safety net. So it's not that it's always been better. It's that in fits and starts in the 20th century, despite the South's reluctance, America did create a fairly viable safety net. It did it in spurts. So you had the progressive era at the beginning of the century, which introduced labor regulations, workplace regulations. You had a series of um, state-level reforms that introduced state-level unemployment insurance. And then you obviously had the federal action in the 1930s, these huge policy reforms around Social Security, around the eight-hour workday, around um, the ability of unions to organize and so on. You had another set of huge reforms in the 1960s. I think what's happened is that the way we understand the 1960s and the 1930s and the progressive era began to shift in the late 70s. Certainly by the Reagan period, there's a tremendous public impatience developing. And I think in part it's because the war on poverty set itself utopian goals. Johnson didn't say, look, we're going to limit poverty. We've got all the resources to limit it. What he said is, we're going to have a war on poverty, and we're going to eliminate poverty. So every time somebody's walking down the street in the 1970s, and they see someone who's manifestly poor, they're homeless, they're drug addicted, whatever it might be, they look at that person and they say, oh no, my tax dollars have been wasted. They've been wasted by the war on poverty, but poverty still remains. Because they were relying essentially on a visual anecdote. They saw somebody poor, therefore the war on poverty had failed. And they weren't looking at the statistics, which actually showed by most measures the war on poverty was a stunning success. It was reducing elderly poverty. It was reducing child poverty. It was reducing the numbers of homeless. It was reducing the numbers of hungry, and so on and so forth. So I think what happened is we increasingly became a country of anecdote. And we looked and we saw one or two or three instances of poverty, and we said, oh, the whole program has failed. And the more that rhetoric took off, the easier it was to have a backlash. The easier it was to say, ah, let's throw, let's throw all these programs away. None of them work. Let's roll back all of these investments. Let's have tax breaks for the middle and the upper income earners instead of funding programs for lower income people. And this becomes sort of a, a vicious cycle. The more we talk about it, the more we tend to think government can't work. The more we tend to think government can't function in this area, the more we resent paying taxes the more we start blaming the poor for their poverty, and the less tolerant we, be, we become, we became a social intervention. And I think over 30 to 40 years, we've seen the corrosive impact of that, that it shifted our political discourse, it's coarsened our political discourse, 
it's allowed for very conservative, very shrill rant radio commentators and television commentators to essentially acquire platforms on this and to use their platforms to really beat up on the poor. And it's become politically respectable in Washington to ignore the needs of the poor. So I don't think there's a single pivot moment, and I know that's a long answer to your question, but I really do think that this is a cultural process that emerged over decades, and we're in a sense seeing the absurdist endpoint of that at the moment. Of course, the more we have seen the, the corrosive influence of money within the political system, and we look at the poor as essentially a constituency that doesn't have the economic ability to influence policy, that's certainly been, been a factor as well, it seems. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're in a country where a, a ruling like Citizens United essentially frees up the wealthiest individuals and the wealthiest corporations to send billions of dollars into the political process to skew the way politics is done in such a community and in such a system, it's not surprising that people with no resources, no access to cash, no ready access to political capital, it's no surprise that their voices tend to be ignored. And I think we're seeing this to an extraordinary extent at the moment, that politics is basically a game that is being played for the benefits of a small sliver of the country. And for the rest of the country, the services being delivered are essentially second rate. And one of the things I write about in my book is part of the conservative project, it seems to me, is to convince the public that government can only deliver lemons, can only deliver non-functioning goods or barely functioning goods because the more that's the case the less tolerant the community becomes of redistributive taxes of progressive policies that actually invest in public infrastructure and again the more that happens the more this is a country and an economy that functions for an elite instead of for a majority and that's a fairly profound shift in how America operates and what kind of a system it values Given where we are, given some of the things we've been talking about, and certainly this is a different environment today from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, it's a different environment than it was 50 years ago. To the extent that we des might desire to address these issues today, what do you see as the public policy steps we would need to take to begin to shift the dialogue and shift the results? You know, I sweated over that for months as I wrote this book because it seemed to me that there was no point in writing a book which just chronicles this, in a sense, national malaise around poverty, that the value of such a book would be if I could say, here's what poverty is, and here's how we can solve it. Here, here are pragmatic changes in the way we tax ourselves, the way we um, invest in public infrastructure. Here are pragmatic changes in the way social insurance systems function. Here are changes in the way we structure education systems labor markets and so on, that cumulatively would have an enormous impact. Not, not, they wouldn't eliminate poverty, but they'd have enormous impact in reducing inequality, in rendering the labor market more functional, in rendering the housing markets and banking systems fairer, and they wouldn't bankrupt the country. So what I did is I put a lot of energy into developing programs. For example, I have one called the, energy, uh, the Educational Opportunity Fund, and it's a social insurance system, quite a complicated social insurance system that at a relatively low cost would render higher education far, far more affordable than it currently is. And that's a huge anti-poverty intervention because so many people are drowning in student debt at the moment. I put another set of proposals out there for how to refinance 
distressed mortgages, so that people who essentially are stuck in homes that are worth far less than they paid for them, how they can become mobile again, how those homes can be refinanced at lower rates. Um, I put a lot of energy into talking about public works models, again, very carefully priced out, that would create reserve pools of money, so in the event of an employment crisis, the money is there to prop up the labor market. So we don't see what we saw in the last recession, where in a very, very short period of time, more than 10 million jobs disappeared. Now, all of these things are doable. This isn't a situation where we just don't have the resources. Resources are there. What we're lacking at the moment is the political will. And I do spend a lot of time in the book charting a way that I see to reinvigorate the political discourse around poverty so that it becomes politically possible to do the sorts of programs that we know would work, that we know would have an impact on tens of millions of Americans' lives. And so that, you know, part two of the book, if I don't like the term a sort of modern-day war on poverty, but if that's where the term is, we can use it. Part one of the book essentially paints a picture of the lives lived by the 50 million Americans in poverty. And part two of the book very carefully develops a programmatic approach that would improve those lives, that would result in a fairer, more equitable society. And finally, based on on all of that, do you see a situation where, where it has to get worse before we're willing to address it in any way related to what you're talking about? Well, I actually think that over the last few years we approached a level of poverty and a level of inequality that most Americans recognize is unsustainable, that it's morally unsustainable, that it just flies in the face of democratic values. And I think we've started seeing, A, some more politicians paying attention to it, but more importantly, we've started seeing a lot of grassroots groups organizing around this, organizing not just around individual problems, but really looking at ways that they tie together and looking at structural reforms that could occur, that should occur at a local level, a state level, or a federal level, that would impact American poverty. And so I think the discourse is shifting. Now, whether things have to get worse before they get better, I don't actually think so. I think we might be at a moment that we were in 50 years ago. When Harrington wrote The Other America, people said, yeah, nobody's going to pay attention because poverty is a taboo topic. And Harrington basically triggered national moral outrage about a problem. And I do think the room is there at the moment for a similar outrage, that people are very uneasy about what's happening in the economy. They're very uneasy about the way the political process is not functioning. And they're looking for ways to improve things. And my hope is that in the next few years, that really acquires momentum and that there really does, this really becomes a central part of the policy discourse rather than something that politicians dip into occasionally but generally ignore. One of the fundamental differences, though, is that 50 years ago we lived in a society in which shame moved people. Shame made a difference. And that was certainly part of what happened when when Harrington's work was was shown to, to the country. I'm not sure we have the same attitude today with respect to shame. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, Harrington certainly opened a lot of eyes. And then Ed Morrow, the very famous TV journalist, opened maybe even more eyes when he did this very famous documentary called Shame of a Nation, and he explored hunger in America. And he visually explored what it meant 
to be a hungry kid in a shack in Mississippi, and he showed malnourished bellies and so on. And it was a very visceral, visual way of shaming people into action. Uh, in a sense, we've become quite desensitized as a culture, and I think it's partly because we're saturated with images all the time, so it's harder to shock us. We're, we're in such a visual culture. We get so many images from our iPhones, our iPads, our iPods, <laughs> our computers, etc., etc., that it takes more to rouse us as a community to, to a sense of collective dismay. But I don't think we've been entirely inured, and I do think that the more that we talk about these issues and the more we explain the importance of those issues, and the more the voices and the images of poverty are made a part of the political discourse, the easier it becomes, if not to shame us into action, the easier it becomes to at least make us anxious enough about the status quo to look for alternatives. So, you know, I do think we're in a different moment from Harrington, and I do think the ways we respond to images are different from they were in Harrington's time. But I'm not totally pessimistic. I do think there is room for change here. Sasha Abramsky, his book is The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Lives. It's just out from Nation Books. Sasha, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.